0: Now today we're beginning a new series in the Old Testament book of Amos. Hey Claire, have a seat, because I'm going to talk for a, a minute. Um, Claire's about to bring us our Bible reading from Amos 1 and 2, but it, it won't take you long to recognise that we're a long way from John's Gospel. And so I thought it would be helpful just to help you understand what we're reading, uh, to, to fill you in about where we're at in the story of God's people. So Amos is set in the 8th century BC. So we're talking about 760 years before the time of Jesus. And at that time, God's people were divided into two kingdoms. You have the southern kingdom of Judah with the temple in Jerusalem. And then you have the larger northern kingdom of Israel And Israel had, since this division, walked further and further away from God under a succession of bad kings. Now, Amos actually addresses both of these kingdoms, but the brunt of his message is directed towards the northern kingdom of Israel. And it won't take you long to see God's not happy with them. But on the surface level, the people of Israel wouldn't have necessarily known. You see, at the point when Amos arrives on the scene, Israel was enjoying an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity. It was internally stable. King Jeroboam, who's mentioned right in verse 1 of Amos 1, he's been on the throne for 40 years, which is a really long time for a king in those days. They tended to have their lives ended by people who wanted their job. Uh, So it's internally stable, but it was also externally peaceful. Israel had managed to, you know, hold off their enemies. They'd even conquered some of their long-time uh, opponents, and they had increased the size of their territory. So internally, things are going well. There's peace. And so with all this peace and stability, there came prosperity... Israel is wealthy at this time and particularly the you know upper middle classes are enjoying that wealth Things were good in Israel at this time they were so good that Israel's rulers well they actually thought God was happy with them they thought that he was giving them all the things that he had promised to Abraham They were powerful they were prosperous it seemed like they were well on their way to becoming a dominant world power. But then along comes Amos, and if you have to sum up his message to Israel. At verse 2 of chapter 1 gives us a pretty good vibe what this book is going to be about. The Lord roars. Claire's going to come and bring our reading from Amos chapter 1. You'll find it on page 1308 if you've got one of the church Bibles. Thanks, Claire.
1: From Amos chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 5. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael that "'that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. "'I will break down the gate of Damascus. "'I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Aden "'and the one who holds the sceptre in Beth-Eden. "'The people in Aram will go into exile to Ker. "'This is what the Lord says, "'For three sins of Gezer even for four, I will not relent.' because she took captive whole communities who sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron until the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Tyre, Even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortresses of Bosra. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah, That will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even before, I will not relent, because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab. "'That will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. "'Moab will go down in great tumult, tumult amid war cries "'and the blast of the trumpet. "'I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him,' "'says the Lord. "'This is what the Lord says. "'For three sins of Judah, even before, I will not relent "'because they have rejected the law of the Lord "'and have not kept his decrees "'because they have been led astray by false gods.' the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem.
0: Thanks so much for reading that, Claire. Well, on Tuesday this, no, Thursday this week, I got to sit down with Michael and Emma and help them prepare for marriage. Um, do be praying for them as they, as they do that, as they prepare to be married. Um, it's also really encouraging to see the way they're thinking about uh, marriage and how they can serve God together. So be encouraged and joyful about that. Uh, but one of the things that came up as we spoke was how much as you grow in relationship with someone, you sort of start to become like them. They rub off on you. And it's not just in marriage, it happens with any kind of relationship. The more time you spend with someone, the deeper your relationship grows the more you start to become like them. You start to like the things they like. You start to dislike the things they dislike. The reason I drink coffee is because I married a woman who drank coffee. On our wedding day, Janice's bridesmaids sat me down and they they told me, they, they didn't advise me, they didn't encourage me or give me, you know, some helpful suggestions. They told me, in no uncertain terms, if you want to live you will bring your wife coffee in the morning. And so here I am 10 years later and I drink coffee and it's her fault. <laughs> I grew to love what Janice loves. I grew to hate what she hates. And I'm sure you've noticed some of these things in your own relationships. Maybe, maybe there's uh, parents who have grown an interest in their child's hobby. All of a sudden, you're passionate about netball. You were never interested in it before. I don't know what it is for you. But the deeper you grow in relationship with people, the more and more they rub off on you and you become like them. And that can be good or bad. This morning, we're beginning a new series looking at the prophecy of Amos. And I'm sure you noticed as we read it, it's not a very nice book. In many ways, it's thoroughly depressing. It's all about God's anger, God's judgment. It's so negative that in the whole nine chapters, there are four verses that give some kind of hope for God's people. Four verses. There's no happy ending to this book. Well, there is a little. But anyway, you have to ask the question, why would we read it? I mean, surely there's enough bad news in our world. Do we really need to bother? Reading nine chapters of judgment. But friends, the thing that makes Amos so hard to read is the very thing that makes it worth reading. Because Amos shows us very, very clearly what God hates. It is nine chapters of God roaring like a ferocious lion. He is furious, his blood is boiling and as we study this book we're going to become more and more aware of what it is that God hates. But as we do that it's my hope that we'll not just become aware of what God hates, there's not really much benefit in that. It's my hope that as we spend more time with God, as we desire to get to know God and to grow deeper and deeper in relationship with God, we want him to rub off on us. We want his desires to become our desires. We want to love what he loves. We want to hate what he hates. And so right now I'm going to pray and ask that God would rub off on us as we study this rather negative book together. So would you pray with me? Father God, we don't like reading about your judgment. It's hard reading. It sounds unloving. It sounds like there is no hope. But Father, we pray this morning that you would open your eyes to see that your your judgment is good. And we pray that as we see what it is that makes you raw, that you would grow in us a desire to be like you, to love what is truly good and to hate sin. Lord, give us these desires because they are foreign to us. We ask this because it is good for us, but we ask it because it brings you glory. Amen. almost everything we know about the prophet Amos, we learn in the very first verse. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. That's about all we know. We know a little bit more. But he's not a king, he's not a ruler, he's not a religious leader. In fact, he, he didn't even kind of call himself a prophet. He's a shepherd He's from a small village outside Bethlehem, which is in Judah, the southern kingdom, which means he's not from Israel. He's coming to talk to Israel, and he's one of them southerners. He's from the other side of the divide between God's people. They have common ancestors. But now there's animosity between them, which means Amos coming to prophesy against the people of Israel would be somewhat like an Englishman coming to try and teach us how to play cricket. It's not going to be received well. And it's hardly an easy message to receive, is it? Take a look at verse 2 The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. It's clear from the outset that Amos is not the main character of this story. He's just the messenger and the central focus of the book is not Amos but the God who speaks through him. And the voice of God through amos it's not a nice voice, it's not a kind voice, it's not a comforting voice. It's a roar. It's a voice that sparks fear in everyone who hears it. It's a voice that thunders. The lush grassy fields hear this voice and wither. The mountains melt because God has roared. Now, that's a picture of God that's not very popular in our day, is it? It's so common to encounter even churches today who who love to praise the God who is kind and loving and gentle, the God who wants you to be happy, the God who is positive and uplifting and inspiring. Now, the God of the Bible is all those things. He is kind. He is the definition of love. He absolutely wants you to be happy. But friends, we need to fill out the picture. And if your God is not also the God who roars at sin, if your God is not also the God who pronounces judgment on wickedness, then your God is neither loving nor kind nor good. If you're a dad and you don't discipline your children, you're... you're, You're a terrible father. You're you're lacking. If there's a government that doesn't act when its people are suffering, it's a terrible government. Why would we want a God who doesn't get angry at sin? Friends, our God is a God who roars. And it it makes us a bit uncomfortable to know that. But what we're going to see as we study this book together, that it is good that God cares about sin. Well, as we move on to verse 3, we see God roaring. But what's interesting is that God begins by pronouncing judgment, not on Israel, but on a whole bunch of Israel's neighbors, that other nations. Verse 3, he says, This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Then we hear it again in verse 6 for three sins of Gaza even for four I will not relent. It's the same for Tyre in verse 9, Edom in verse 11, Ammon in verse 13 and Moab in chapter 2 verse 1. For three sins even for four I will not relent. Now that expression for three even for four it's a Hebrew way of just saying many. <laughs> For the many sins of Damascus, I will not relent. But the point being made is that this is not just God flying off the handle and reacting. This is God punishing, enduring sin, ongoing sin. Not just for one sin, not just for two sins, but for many sins. You see, up until this point, God has been patient, He's given people chances, and that is the God that we worship, a God who gives chances, who is very patient. The only thing that is stopping God from uh, from enacting the judgment that he promises is coming is his patience, his kindness. He's giving us time to repent. But friends, make no mistake, that patience has a limit. Because of the many sins of the nations, he will not relent. Judgment's coming. Now, each of these six uh, oracles follow the same pattern. After announcing the end of his patience, God then presents the evidence for his judgment. And then he hands down his punishment. In the case of Damascus, in verse 3, we're told that she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Oh, sorry. Here we go. Now, a threshing sledge, I'm not sure if any of you have used one. It's an ancient farming implement that was dragged across the grain on a hard floor to crush it and tear it apart. But God's beef with Damascus isn't their farming practices. No, they were threshing people. In the early years of the 8th century BC, Syria, which is uh, where the capital Damascus is, uh, Syria had attacked Israel and they had taken the eastern city of Gilead. Gilead is an Israelite city. And they had shown no regard for human life. They had treated people like grain. They had cut them down, crushed them, torn them apart. They had brutally mistreated God's people and their war crimes have not gone unnoticed. For the many sins of Damascus, God will not relent. The king of Syria will be punished. The fortress cities will be destroyed. The people of Syria will be banished from their own country. And friends, this same pattern repeats for each of the nations that Amos mentions. In verse 6, the Philistines of Gaza are held to account for handing whole communities of the Israelites over as slaves. In verse 9, the city of Tyre is accused of the same crime. But in this case, it's even worse because Amos says they have disregarded a treaty of brotherhood. That is, they've broken a peace pact that they had with God's people. And then they've handed them over. In verse 11, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, they're judged for their relentless pursuit of the Israelites, the descendants of Esau's brother Jacob. In verse 13, the Ammonites too are guilty of war crimes for even tearing open pregnant women so as to ensure that the people of Gilead were completely destroyed. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, the Moabites, they're judged for burning the bones of the Edomite king after battle to prevent him from being buried in his own country. Amos chapter 1 is a catalogue of crimes against humanity. And God will not be patient forever. For their many sins, God will hold the nations to account. He sees the way that they have mistreated his people, but also other people. He cares about the injustices that his people are suffering. He cares about the injustices that these nations are perpetuating. God sees their sins. He cares about their sins. And so he acts. He will not relent. Now, friends, the same is still true today. Because make no mistake, God sees the injustices of our world. He cares about the injustices of our world. And he will hold to account all those who who, who enact, who do all these injustices in our world. Just as God cared about the pregnant women of Gilead being torn open in war. And just as God cared about the king of Edom being dishonored by the Moabites. God also cares about the thousands upon thousands of Ukrainians who have been displaced and tortured and mistreated and killed by Russian soldiers. And he also cares about the unarmed Afghan civilians who were killed by Australian soldiers. God cares about the children being conscripted and made to fight by extremist groups in Somalia He cares about women being trafficked as sex slaves in the Philippines. God cares about the victims of domestic violence. He cares about those who have been sexually abused in churches. He cares about the unborn children being killed in the name of personal freedom. And friends, whenever you are mistreated, Any injustices that you face, he cares about you too. God is the God of all nations and he cares about the injustices that befall all people. And friends, that's a huge comfort for us. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I look at the news, it's easy to despair at at the injustice in our world. Because even our best attempts at human justice, they're so flawed, aren't they? You, you see you know, murderers getting off lightly. You, you see human justice unable to actually deal with the results of sin. Human justice is so blind, it can't know all the facts. It's biased. It's prone to corruption. We live in a world where the guilty go unpunished, where the rich and powerful buy legal immunity, where the poor are exploited and mistreated and human justice will not fix it. But friends, take comfort because God will. Right now, God is being patient. He's giving time for people to repent. But the God who knows all and sees all The God who sees every word and deed, but also every thought and motivation. The God who sees every injustice and cares about every injustice will act upon every injustice. And we know that because he has appointed a judge, a just judge, a fair judge. A judge who set foot on this earth once to right wrongs and who has promised that he will return one day to judge the living and the dead. Friends, for crimes against humanity, God will bring justice. What a comfort for us when we experience injustice. Now at this point in the book of Amos... The people of Israel who are hearing Amos speak, they're probably cheering because a prophet has come from their lousy southern neighbours to tell them about how angry God is. But then he's proceeded to pronounce judgments on every one of their enemies. He even then, in chapter 2, verse 4, gets better because Amos then prophesies against his own people. The kingdom of Judah. He says, for three sins of Judah and for four, I will not relent. The people of Israel are cheering. This prophet has come to say, how about everyone else's? Now, there's something different about what God says to Judah. Because while each of the nations that Amos prophesied against earlier are guilty of crimes against humanity... The people of Judah are guilty of something even worse. You see, all the nations in chapter one, they have something in common. They're not God's people. They aren't the people of God, they aren't the ones that God has chosen to be his special possession. They don't have his promises, they don't have his temple or his priests, they don't have the prophets, they don't have the law. Now, that doesn't excuse them, does it? For three sins of the nations, even for four, God will not relent. He is going to hold them to account. Even though these nations don't have the Bible, so to speak, God still holds them to account for their sin. And that's true today. All people on earth will be held to account for their sin. Every human has a conscience that that knows the difference between right and wrong. And every human will be held to account. But if God's going to judge these pagan nations for their sin, how much more will he judge those who have had God himself teach them and yet continue in sin? For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. You see, while the nations surrounding them were guilty of crimes against humanity, Judah is guilty of crimes against divinity. It's a far greater injustice. Injustice against other humans deserves punishment because humans are created in God's image and given worth by him. But while humans have great value, God has infinite value. Humans are worthy of love and respect, but God, he is worthy of worship and devotion. He is worthy of our total devotion. And so to give him anything less than that, that is a great injustice. Think of it this way. It's one thing to throw a punch at your next door neighbour. It's quite another thing to throw a punch at the king. Whether you like Charles or not, he is your sovereign He is worthy of special honor. But friends, God is worthy of all honor. And to assault his infinite glory is the greatest injustice. Well, up until this point, the people of Israel, they're they're probably applauding Amos. Keep going, brother. Keep prophesying. Is there any more enemies that you'd like to say anything about? Not only has he pronounced judgment on Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab, he's now even turned on his own people. This is brilliant. But what they may have missed, and what we wouldn't necessarily realize until we look at a map, is that Amos is just drawing a circle and spiraling in. These are the order of the prophecies. He goes to Judah, but you can see where his target is, can't you? Amos has been circling around each of Israel's neighbours, but what Israel didn't realise is that he was zeroing in on his main target. And so from verse 6 of chapter 2, right through until the end of the book, God's judgment on Israel is revealed. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Now, friends, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the sin of Israel in more detail. We're going to see what it was that provoked God to roar at them so violently. But for now, I want us to learn a simple lesson from their experience which is that the message of Amos is first and foremost not a message for those outside the people of God. It's a message for us. You see, it's so easy for us to read a book like Amos that speaks of sin and judgment and automatically think about the judgment that is coming on people out there. Now, don't misunderstand me. God will judge sin. He will hold the guilty accountable. But before we come like the little sister who's taunting her brother who got in trouble from dad. No, no, you got in trouble. Let us consider how God might be roaring at us. Because, brothers and sisters, in our desire to grow into deeper relationship with God, we must learn to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. And if there's one thing that God hates, it's when his own people, his chosen people, his redeemed people, the people that he's set free from slavery to sin, when they sin just like their neighbours do. When God speaks in the book of Amos, he reserves his fiercest roar, not for the pagan nations, but for his own people who should know better. And so it's easy for us to think, like the Israelites did in Amos' time, that God is happy with us and just look at the sin outside our walls. It's easy for us to sit here smugly while we wait for God to enact his judgment on the ungodly. But friends, if God sees and cares about and acts upon the injustices of the world, how much more does he see and care about and act upon the injustices perpetrated by his own people? Over the next few weeks, we're going to see more of God's anger at sin. But what I want us to do as we, as we see what it is that God hates is not in our minds automatically think of the other people who are guilty of that sin. I want us to look first in our own hearts to see what God would expose in us so that we can indeed become more like him. Let me pray. Our great God, we we praise you that you are a God of justice, that you will hold the guilty to account. We take comfort in that knowing when we are mistreated, when we suffer injustice, that you see and you care and that you will act. We long for the day when justice is brought like the martyrs under the altar in in revelation we 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 ask how long lord until jesus returns and makes all things right but father we praise you also for your patience that while we wait for you to bring justice we know that you are giving time for all people to repent thank you for your mercy and your kindness we thank you that you gave us time to repent. Lord, help us see your hatred of sin. Help us see your hatred of mistreatment and oppression and injustice. But Lord, before we look out at others and point the finger, Lord, would you expose sin in us? Make us aware of our sin. Make us know how far short we have fallen from your standards. But Father, as we do that, also help us to know with confidence that your just judge, the Lord Jesus, has won forgiveness for us. We acknowledge our sin, but at the same time, we rejoice knowing that Jesus has paid the price for it. We rejoice that he bore your wrath, that he stood before the roaring Father and took the punishment that we deserve. But Lord, don't let us receive that mercy and then ignore our sin. Cleanse us, purify us, make us more like him, we pray. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.